Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and on this episode, I'm joined by conservative MP for Durham and former leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, Aaron O'Toole. He joins me for a wide-ranging conversation about his experience as leader, populist challenges to conservative politics, and what comes next. I got to know Aaron originally as a colleague of his on the Public Safety and National Security Committee when I was first elected in 2015. I've always enjoyed debating him both in Parliament and at one point even in the 2019 election. Most recently, I joined Aaron as a guest on his podcast, the Blue Skies Podcast. And if you enjoy our conversation here, I encourage you to check that out. And while we certainly don't agree on everything, Aaron does come from a progressive conservative tradition. And as leader, I respected his attempt to modernize his party, even if that is ultimately what did him in. Aaron, thanks so much for joining me. Good to be with you, Nate. Today is an important day, and you have, I think, a number of stories probably you could tell about the veterans you've met along your political career and and in your career in the military. But I saw you speak in the House recognizing a particular D-Day veteran, Fred Bernard, and, and Don Bernard, his brother. I had a similar experience here in the riding Guy Eisner as the D-Day vet who I connected with and played cribbage with and was able to recognize in the house. But given we're recording today, it'll be posted, obviously, I think in a, in a few days, but today being June 6th and the anniversary of D-Day, let's start. Tell me a little bit about Fred and Don. Well, thanks for starting this way, because, yeah, these are stories now that we have to tell because both Fred and Don have have passed on, as have many uh, veterans from World War II, and particularly the veterans that were part of the first wave on Juneau Beach. And both Don and Fred, who were from Toronto, and then uh, then later on, Fred retired to Uxbridge, which I represented as a new MP. They were part of the first wave on Juneau Beach, Queen's Own Rifles, and literally two brothers were in the landing craft together. And Fred always remembered the last thing he said to his brother was, give him hell, Don. And they, the, the, they hit the beach. And for Fred, his Juneau Beach experience started in the first few minutes he looked over and his brother was hit. And so Don died on the beach and he went over and 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 tried to see if he was okay. And he remembered seeing his broken watch frozen at the time that his brother died. There was nothing he could do. Then he had to go on and take the beach. So I always was just floored by the first time he told me the story to be able to not only muster up the courage to get out of the landing craft with all your comrades, but then to stare in the face, the death of your brother within the first few minutes of the battle, and then have to go on and take the beach and reach the objective. Remarkable person. And late in his life, the people in Uxbridge, because Fred couldn't get out for, for D-Day or for Remembrance Day, they would often bring it to him. So when he had one of his final birthdays, the regiment, the town, the high school students at Uxbridge Secondary did a parade on his street so that he could sit on his porch. And so your experience with the veteran playing crib, and and now you can talk about him. It's really up to us to carry some of these personal stories of, of these remarkable Canadians um, forward, because very few of them can do it themselves. So uh, thanks for starting the podcast that way. We're recording it on on really the turning point of the Second World War, the the D-Day operations, and I've had the good fortune to to be on Juneau Beach, standing there with some of our veterans who who landed there. 
um, remarkable, remarkable uh, people, and we should never forget them. I remember being at a, a D-Day parade, and there was no D-Day veteran there. And I recalled knocking on doors the election prior and knocking on the door of Guy Eisner. And he had at the time told me a little bit about his story, but not a lot. And I couldn't spend too much time at the door with him, given in the middle of the campaign. And so I had a, this intention of going back and spending more time with him. And everyone was going back to the Legion after the D-Day parade. And I thought, hang on, I have a vague recollection of where Guy lives. I don't know the exact house, but I kind of remember, I know the street. I, I kind of remember what it looks like at the veranda. What's the, you know, hopefully he's home. And I ducked out. I didn't go to the Legion. I, I found the right house, I thought, knocked on the door. He answered the door. He invited me in, gave me a, you know, a, a brown bottle beer. And we played cribbage for a good hour. And I, I played cribbage with my grandpa growing up. So it was really nice to, and he's passed. So it was really nice to play with Guy. But he, the stories he told were also incredible. Even about cribbage, he learned how to play cribbage in the foxhole. Like, it's like, you can't even... <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I can't even put my my head in the same place. Yeah, it's wonderful you did that. And uh, um, I did that once with Fred when we were giving out a commemorative pin for the 70th anniversary of, of World War II. Uh, he couldn't make it to the Legion at that time. He wasn't feeling well. So I planned a second visit where I presented him with the pin in his home. And I brought a another young veteran from uh, from Uxbridge from his same regiment. Oh, wow. to the home with me and uh, seeing them interact, even though there was literally, you know, 60, 70 years between their service with the regiment was, was pretty special to, to sit down on his couch. I uh, did one of my podcasts with, with Fred before he passed by then he was, he was not as uh, clear in his stories and, you know, he's a bit confused, but um, yeah, spending time, like, this is one of the things that is a real privilege to the job we have as, as MPs is we get to meet some remarkable people, veterans, volunteers, uh, trailblazers, and, and, and people that you get to interact with because of the job. But in some cases, you develop friendships and, and deep admiration for people. And for me, being a veteran and then being veterans minister, and, and I've always considered my role is a special one that I have to make time for uh, for advocating for veterans' well-being and mental health, and I've, I've seen it as a sort of responsibility I have as a as a younger veteran. You're right about the need to carry stories on. I was at a 100th anniversary ceremony of a cenotaph at my old high school, Melbourne Collegiate, here in the East End, and the cenotaph has the names of the boys of Melvern, you know, some were in their early twenties, others, I, th I think one as young as 15 who lied about his age. Guy Eisner lied about his age too, <laughs> strangely enough, but in the world war one context, 25, I think names on the cenotaph and, and it's been updated and, and restored a couple of different times now. But the, the I remember as a student, I just walked by that cenotaph so many times and, and didn't turn my mind to it whatsoever. It was just part of the school. It's now built into the front end of the school. And uh, unless you actively share the stories and remember to tell the stories and pass those stories on, it just becomes something you walk by. Absolutely. You know, I've often talked about how we forget about the human impact of this loss. And Canada is a very young nation in World War I. Uh, you know, my small towns of, of Bowmanville and the 
Fort Perry and the areas I represent, they lost uh, dozens of sons in communities that were really only a few thousand people. And so back then, everyone um, had a direct tie to it. And uh, I, I do think, uh, I do think there's been kind of a, an appreciation in the last decade or so of, of our, our history and veterans and, and maintaining these stories because um, we're, we're very soon going to be at a point where we don't have any veterans left from World War II. And I remember years ago when our last World War I veteran passed. So it is, I often say it's like passing the torch to what John McRae said in, in Flanders Fields. For us, the, the torch of remembrance must be passed. And so um, I, I always try and incorporate that that in. I'm now doing an initiative with some of the Afghanistan veterans who want to see one of their comrades uh, reconsidered for a Victoria Cross, Jess La Rochelle. And they've brought together sort of a public education campaign. And, and I want to bring something forward so that we can, like other countries, recognize that our, our process uh, of reviewing these things is not perfect. And we should be willing to take a look, not just for Jess La Rochelle, but there's a lot of sense that uh, Indigenous veterans, maybe, maybe uh, people of minority uh, communities were passed over in the past because of uh, intolerance or something. So the U.S., uh, some of our allies are, are, are revisiting some of these cases. And I think it's time for Canada to have a, a transparent professional process to do that as well. And that's part of the living memory that we, that we owe people who serve. You mentioned Indigenous veterans. It's interesting in East York, the Legion Branch 345 is actually the Oliver Martin Branch, named after an Indigenous veteran. And there's a, an interesting story to that as well. And they're very proud. They've got a big portrait of Oliver Martin up in the Legion. And it's quite a, uh, it's an element of their history that they're quite proud of, actually, up at Branch 345. So this is probably not the most elegant of segues, but today is not only D-Day, but today is also a very political day across the pond in the UK. And Boris Johnson is fighting to save his position as prime minister, and not in a general fight, but in a fight among his own caucus. There are very few, maybe no other people in the country here in Canada who are as equipped to consider what that's like. But what is in the lead up to something like today for Boris Johnson and <clears throat> and on the day itself, you, you gave a speech to your caucus. You obviously knew that there was a fight brewing and for, for weeks, I imagine, if not months. What was that like to go through? And what is Boris Johnson going through today? Well, I can't draw a direct parallel, Nate, because certainly it's different being um, a prime minister facing these challenges in caucus versus leader of the opposition, which uh, many describe <laughs> as kind of the loneliest job in politics. Um, but I, I can certainly relate to to the challenge he faces where you'll have people that um, don't agree with you or are upset with you and therefore start to operate outside the confines of the team, you know, a caucus, as you know, and I, you know, I've teased you about being a bit of a rebel within the liberal caucus before we have fun with that, but you've explained it very well that on confidence matters and other things, you will, you will always be there for your team, but 
you've also said you will speak out and 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 advocate on things you're passionate about. And really, when you have caucus meetings is when you hash all these things out. And you might say, I'm going to be voting uh, for Gord John's bill, for example, as 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 some of your you and your colleagues did. Um, but as long as the team is talking about it, you can then have these areas where there's disagreement, but you're working together to bridge those things. Um, I think what what happens to to some leaders, including me, is when you have people operating outside of those caucus discussions and really um, exercising their own agenda, um, which isn't actually respecting the team's agenda. So I'm not sure, you know, it'll be interesting to see if if Boris Johnson survives. Uh, I think he probably will. But these this sort of party gate scandal or whatever you want to say that, that when there was COVID restrictions and it came out that uh, he and his team were attending parties and, and and flaunting the rules, that can be bitter because people missed funerals, people missed celebrations exactly. and 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 you have to lead by example and we tried to do that all throughout the pandemic. But look, the there's a lot of angst out there and um, I think all leaders are are facing it. Um, some may be more successfully than, than I did, but um, I, I took... Well, it's an unfair comparison though, Aaron, in some ways, because uh, an unfair comparison uh, for me to impose, because there was a string of scandals that led up to the review of Boris Johnson here, and, and you've mentioned Partygate. I remember I was in Brussels in November, it must have been, for one of these International Grand Committee hearings with Francis Haugen, the Facebook whistleblower, and uh, Maria Ressa uh, by video conference. And I, I turn on the news there, and it's, again, just a, another scandal for Boris Johnson and another scandal for the Conservative Party. And in that case, it was about the hiding, the it was an expense scandal that the Prime Minister had tried to protect and 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 failed to disclose uh, sufficient information and and tried to bury, I suppose. And you didn't have any of these scandals. Your from from the outside, the way it looked at least, was you ran initially for leader and lost as someone who I know you to be. And then when you ran the second time around, you puffed up a bit in terms of the true blue and and you in some ways maybe that came back to bite you because when you were firm on equality rights when you said we're going to care about climate and when you were less forcefully supportive of the convoy potentially then ideas did you in it wasn't a scandal per se it was people disagreed with you and people wanted a, a different conservative party um i think the easy way to really describe it nate is the changes I was making, uh, the way I view it as I was modernizing the party, um, which all parties should do to reflect the hopes, fears, aspirations of the country. But some of the changes I was making were pretty big ones for for some in our party. And I really needed to win the election to, to uh, sort of paint over the cracks that uh, that some of my changes were causing. We almost did win the election. And I think time time will tell that that the timing of the election and the mandate issue and all these sorts of things, it, it was really done to maximize the potential of, of Mr. Trudeau getting reelected and us descending into chaos over vaccine mandates and these sorts of things. We, we did not. We won the popular vote, 
Uh, we almost won the election. We lost probably about eight or nine seats to foreign interference from China. I think, you know, that would have probably given me a little more sturdy of a leg to stand on if if I if I held it to a very small minority and we'd had a record win for the opposition, but that didn't happen. And I wasn't willing to backtrack on some of the things that I think we were making progress on, whether it was LGBTQ rights, whether it was climate change. Um, and what's what's interesting, I, I read that narrative in the media a lot that, you know, Aaron O'Toole, you know, was true blue and take back Canada and he changed. No, I was trying to speak to people that were already disaffected. They're more so now. The 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 degree of sort of anger uh, out there and frustration and uh, is is quite concerning. But what I wanted to make sure that people knew uh, that I was going to fight for issues they cared about and was I a little more aggressive in language? Yes, but I was still running as the moderate in that race as someone who was very fiscally conservative and conservative on military and foreign affairs and those sorts of things. But I've always been proud to have a a strong record in support of, of, of rights, whether it's rights of women, uh, whether it's the right of LGBTQ Canadians. And what I've said is when I was in the military, I learned that in the military, you're there to safeguard the country, its institutions, and the rights of its citizens. And so I don't pick or choose which I think are important. And I came into politics that way, sometimes voting with a small group within the Conservative Party on uh, transgender rights, for example, and with Randall Garrison's bill. And I always try to articulate that I'm here to, to support and secure rights, never to erode them. And, um, you know, people were okay. Like I wasn't the first choice for social conservatives or, or, or some of our members like that, but I was always pretty transparent on uh, how I would approach things, try to do it respectfully. And, and so I was the same guy in both leadership races. Um, I think the country had changed between uh, say 2016, 2017 and 2019. And I really worry the country is still changing in a negative direction. And populism is now as big a part of our party as conservatism. And I think that that's something the next leader will have to be very careful to not lose the bubble on. Well, let's, let's pause there and reflect on that because we have a conservative leadership race where, again, I'm not following every speech that Pierre Poilev gives, and I can appreciate the game as far as it goes. He's good at what he does at times, but I see some of what he says, and I think, okay, well, he's embracing populism in a more serious way than I would have otherwise expected, and he might be doing so much of that embracing that he's going to lose the ultimate election in the end, because it certainly turns conservatives in my writing away and in, in a serious way. So when you think of the state of conservatism today and, and the leadership race, and that hopefully doesn't continue to go sideways, but do you worry uh, that populism is in some ways displacing, in some ways displacing the conservatism that you sought to represent and, and, and were representing? Um, yes, a little bit, Nate. What what I think, uh, and there's always going to be a, an element of of populism to politics. You know, there will be, you know, what are people passionate about, um, um, even if it's not 
something that was there a few years ago, a certain policy issues rise up as climate has in the last 15 years, for example. But what I worry about is with, with the populism of anger or frustration or dislocation is that can, that can undermine institutions. It can undermine national unity. And so I think this is something all candidates, you know, I'm neutral in this race, of course, and, and all candidates have to be aware of, and the same, same issues playing out in Quebec on language or Bill 21 um, have populist elements to them. Um, the, you, you see some of the stuff on the internet about the World Economic Forum, things like this. These are where people want to attribute blame to something that is causing them frustration or if they're being held back. Um, this is where you have to be very careful is, is not presenting some boogeyman as the, as the reason why um, you know, you're having trouble paying the bills or something with inflation. They're the, presenting a plan to tackle these problems is what I think a conservative needs to do. And what you have to be mindful of is um, there'll be scapegoating and other things that, that, that is happening. And I think as a leader, you have to make sure you're not engaging in that uh, to say you're tackling the issues. You have to present your solutions to those problems and cry, try and kind of transform that frustration into positive action as opposed to just adding to the frustration. So I think all, all candidates in this race are, are seeing that angst out there. Um, and I think they have to handle it responsibly. And I do think all right of center parties in democracies right now, um, Mr. Johnson, um, in, in the U S the Republicans are struggling with this balance between kind of the traditional free market conservatives who are strong on foreign policy, national defense, public safety, these sorts of things. And this populist element that, um, is probably most apparent in the United States, but I, I, I looked at the last French election um, and the old party of Sarkozy, Les Républicains, basically disappeared. And as they were going down, they, they started engaging in what, you know, trying to compete with the far right in France. And I think it's, it's sad to see that happen in France Sad to see some of the rhetoric in, in the U.S. within the Republican Party. And I think Canada, we've been largely immune from some of this, but I, we're not completely immune. And I think all, all members of our party, particularly elected officials, I've often said we cannot let the tail wag the dog. We have to present responsible leadership, responsible solutions and try and transform that frustration into, as I said, positive action. And here in Ontario, we just saw someone who I've always thought as a more populist kind of premier, but he won a crushing majority in some ways because he, in the course of the pandemic response, and it was, uh, uh, you know, uh, I'm not going to be overly critical. I'll try not to be overly critical. It, it was not... The best COVID response at times, but certainly it wasn't an embracing the convoy pandemic response. And and Doug Ford avoided that entire kind of populism, I would say. And and to his credit, because I don't think he would have won the crushing majority that he did if he had embraced the convoy in the way that some of the federal conservatives had. 
And we see this play out a little bit in the leadership race where that particular issue, I, I didn't, again, I didn't watch all of the debates. I'm, I'm not a masochist entirely, but when it comes to that particular issue, some people were tripping over themselves to say, I was the greatest supporter of the convoy. And then others were saying it was a, an insurrection and, and a blockade and it needed to be put to an end. And those were very different very different views of a particular issue and uh, an issue that I think represents some of the anger you're, you're, you're speaking to. Yeah, I think, I think Premier Ford very, very uh, masterfully balanced off um, concerns within the pandemic about public health restrictions, these sorts of things, with an appeal to uh, why it was being done. I thought his best comments was the frank admission that we didn't get everything right. And I, I don't think voters expect perfection, but they expect you to, to be trying to make sure you put public health decisions, you know, as primary focus in a pandemic and balance off economic and, and restrictions in a way that is fair and evolves over time. Um, I, I think he was rewarded heavily for that, acknowledging that it was never perfect, but it can never be perfect in a in a crisis, the convoy itself, you know, the convoy was started by Justin Trudeau. Um, and, you know, when he announced the vaccine mandate and two or three days later calls a federal election, Nate, he, there was no bill before parliament. There was no debate. In fact, the house had voted to not have a pandemic election and three or four months before the election, Justin Trudeau said, vaccines would never be mandated in Canada. I was in the position where I was very pro-vaccine. Rebecca and I publicized our vaccination process. I, every press conference I did, I talked about the importance of getting vaccinated and having your questions answered. Yet in the campaign, even Justin Trudeau, who thanked me for the video I put out on Twitter, getting vaccinated, literally was implying several months later that I was anti-vax. And because I didn't think someone should lose a job and their livelihood uh, over the vaccination issue, if they could be accommodated. And I, I, I think we're learning now, in many cases, they could have been. What did that result in? It resulted in a large number, a minority, but you're still talking a million to two million people feeling ostracized, um, feeling like outcasts. I was speaking with another MP of a different party the other day. Uh, she doesn't talk to her brother uh, over this issue. It's split families. And how can we minimize that, that fiss fissures between people? Um, my problem with what happened with the convoy was that was not advocating for reasonable accommodations for truckers. I had done that for months, much to the chagrin of the, of the press gallery. Every time I kind of said, we have to look at reasonable accommodation. As you know, as a lawyer, this is actually the legal requirement. Um, the convoy then took a life of its own and was not about reasonable accommodations for truckers. It was seized upon by various groups, various agendas, some of them very troubling. And I said to people at the time, for the same reason I opposed people blockading bridges or rail lines, um, 
I oppose this. And you cannot pick or choose, oh, we will, we will support this blockade because they vote for us um, or some of them vote for us. That is not consistent. In, uh, it's not intellectually honest in my view. So I think that's where our party had a lot of difficulties. And I had difficulty getting the caucus to row in the same direction on that very issue, which is um, advocating for, for folks as we did for months does then not extend into turning a blind eye for breaking the laws. Um, and a number of people caught up in the pandemic, caught up in the frustrations, kind of ignored those negative aspects to the convoy. And um, maybe it was the final nail in, in my coffin for, for, oh, for that's some the, people. That's the irony but, to all of this, right? That you you started your response by saying that the man, the the convoy began in response to Justin Trudeau, but it ended by by taking your job in some ways. It, it, it did, you know, in, in fact, um, this is another thing, you know, you and I've talked a lot over the years about social media and I've, I've respected the work you've been doing, um, with that, you know, multilateral group looking at social media and other things, but in the pandemic, I found one thing that is going to cause lingering problems for our country is that people consumed a lot more social media. Um, and when it came to health information where it came to politics it was really just the echo chamber effect on on steroids you know people were just getting their own views reinforced so if people were vaccine hesitant they would seek out what other people in that community was saying and they became they went from being hesitant to being anti-vax the same thing happened politically and it happens on left and right and it it is then making it harder to find that middle ground of compromise if the extremes are just being stretched out and people drawn into that. That happened big time in the convoy where I remember, you know, a few MPs, you know, saying the entire country's behind this movement. And I would say to them, no, your entire social media following is. <laughs> but, but if I was to walk into the beaches and ask folks, uh, about the convoy, it was probably 80, 20 against. And so yeah, maybe I received very negative feedback in some ways. I spoke on the Emergencies Act and I was critical of the invocation of the Emergencies Act because I don't think the strict legal threshold was met, but I was also critical of the convoy, of course. But in some ways that wasn't enough for some constituents. And they said, you should have supported the government. The Emergencies Act was necessary. And so even even taking a more nuanced view on the subject matter was open to some criticism because of the frustration and anger against the convoy. Yeah. You gave a really good speech. I thought so did Michael Chong. There were some good speeches. Um, I was still, uh, um, you know, tending to the wounds in my back and, <laughs> and just watching, <laughs> watching from, from you would have given a good speech. Sure. <laughs> I would have given a very good speech because I, I think you're hundred percent right. There was, they were nowhere near the threshold required for an emergencies act invocation. And um, once again, I, I think these are going to be legacy things that caught continued divisions in our country for years to come um, is, is overreach like that. But you could have concerns as you expressed with use of the emergencies act, 
while also having serious concerns about uh, lawlessness and, and the convoy and just kind of total disrespect for laws and for community. And former chief slowly, he was the other sort of casualty of that that kind. I should I should go out for lunch with him and commiserate. But <laughs> you, it was clear, he said recently, he didn't ask for the powers and they easily could have brought in police officers from Durham and Toronto, which they ultimately did without such a uh, huge invocation of, of extreme powers of the state. Um, but what you found was as I said, in social media circles, people were just being reinforced. So the some of the people around the convoy considered themselves, you know, freedom fighters. Um, and uh, the other extreme, um, people would say there was an insurrection, therefore justifying uh, extraordinary measures of the state. Um, where was the ability to have sort of reasonable common ground that that is what really did me in because um, most folks in my caucus wanted us to be somehow supportive of the convoy and and I couldn't I, I had said many times there's there was no one advocating six months ago for truckers not losing their jobs because of a mandate other than us my my first press conference of of the year on January 6th, was on the trucker issue because we were having supply chain shortages. And what a lot of Canadians, a lot of journalists didn't seem to notice was the fact that the Canada-US border, that was something that Biden controlled as much as us. But the government was planning to restrict interprovincial trucking to people that, um, that, that were fully vaccinated. Well, there isn't a trucker in Ontario that doesn't go into Quebec or into Manitoba. So if they had actually taken that next step and limited that interprovincial, which is a federal uh, federal area of jurisdiction, it would have caused so much upheaval. So quietly, the government didn't proceed with that planned step. Um, but by that time, the reasonable discussion you could have about how to accommodate unvaccinated truckers was completely lost to what became really the circus of the, of the convoy um, run by, by two people that were not truckers themselves. And so the, the whole thing was seized. I think there was a reasonable issue and a lot of people admired the truckers who kept shelves full during the, during the pandemic. So some people took a, a reasonable area of debate on accommodation and support for people that kept those shelves full during the pandemic and then took that for their own you know self-interest on on really what amounted to anti-lockdown and 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 anti-mandate protests and or, or any or anti any covert measures which you know I I think you are right with respect to reasonable accommodation where it is possible. I, I was a supporter of vaccine mandates. I continue to support the idea of vaccine mandates where they can increase vaccination rates and therefore save lives. But there are two justifications effectively for a mandate. One is to do just that to increase rates. And the second is to reduce transmission risk. And where we are now at in the pandemic, and I'm thinking specifically of the federal travel mandate because Melissa Lantzman, a colleague of yours, put forward, I think the third motion from the opposition benches to do away with all travel related restrictions. And I 
speaking of being a team player, I, you know, I, I supported the government's position a couple of different times, although the second time I was raising more questions. And this past time I abstained, I, I, I wasn't so comfortable with dropping sur- sur- surveillance testing and, and dropping masks right away. Although I think these will eventually eventually give way. But on the mandate question, a two-dose exclusive mandate, like I can't get my head around how we can now look at the justification and we say, well, everyone who is going to have had this vaccine a two do- the two doses has already has already had it you know the the mandate has done its job in relation to increasing rates and there's no serious significant reduction via transmission for a two dose mandate especially you know when your second dose was so long ago and so not having at a minimum some rapid test accommodation i mean it really doesn't make sense to have a two dose mandate at all but not having at a minimum some rapid test accommodation and and i think you're right about taking the sting out of it because i I speak to constituents. I don't have an overwhelming number of them, but there are some constituents who have compelling stories, you know, even in some cases where vaccination is in play, you know, where they had their first dose and they had a reaction. So they don't want to get their second dose and we are not accommodating them. And even one case, it blew my mind. It's it's a woman. Her mother is Russian. She's in Russia. She has a super visa already. She doesn't need a new document. She can come to Canada, except she can't come to Canada. She can't flee the authoritarian violent regime because she only has the Sputnik vaccine and we don't recognize the Sputnik vaccine. It's like, and there's no exception. It makes you want to tear your hair out saying, how do we design these rules that are excluding people instead of being as inclusive as, as reasonably, as reasonably possible? And you're right. How do we design these rules to be as reasonable and flexible as possible and to reflect the science as we know it? Remember in the uh, the early parts of the pandemic when I was running for leader and you know some of my medical advisors said we should be using masks. And at first, remember Dr. Tam was, and Minister Haiju was discouraging mask use. And then when they changed their position on it, uh, I think it was Minister Haiju said, quite regularly, well, the science is always uh, evolving and our understanding and, and basically yeah. the ability to review um, in and, and have peer-reviewed science tables look at this. And we're now constantly trying to get our public health advice right. I agree with that 100%, and I constantly supported um, public health authorities, but that should still continue. We now know, given especially Omicron, that what the vaccines do best is minimize symptoms and minimize risks for people that catch COVID. We've learned the hard way <laughs> over time that it's n- they're not as effective at eliminating the risk of transmission. And so what you're describing now, like some people that can't travel, and we're still holding on to the vestiges of the first round of knowledge around the vaccines, and we're not we're not having that realistic approach using the science as we now know it. So, you know, vaccines are still critical because they will virtually eliminate, not completely, but the risk of death or serious hospitalization for a a healthy person without any other health ailments. Um, So we should still push and promote vaccines as much as possible. The real public policy decision has to be are, how far are we going to go? And what I said in the campaign many times, um, people are probably sick of hearing about it, but um, we encourage vaccines and 
restriction on going to a hockey game or a movie is a lot different than losing your job and your home and, and having family breakdown. And that's where I drew the line is the restrictions put in place by the provinces, I thought were reasonable abilities to keep numbers down in terms of social distancing, keep numbers down. And to go into one of these premises, you needed to be vaccinated. Um, but for somebody to lose a job when they could be accommodated or they could use rapid testing um, was unfair, particularly when we were sitting in Ottawa and half the civil service is still working from home. And not every Canadian has that ability to, mm. to zoom in to work. And particularly as you went down to the lower uh, income levels where people were already tight. And you and I talked about the Canada Workers Benefit and, and, and some of the work we tried to do to help people in the lower income stratas, they also had fewer options if they lost their job due to a mandate. And um, I think we're going to look back at this in, in five to 10 years and, and find that there were some serious mistakes made in terms of how we tackled this. Because my real concern now is if we had another uh, transmissible disease or virus or something in the future, I don't think we're going to get the vaccination rates that we got during this pandemic because of how politicized this issue has been. And because people were told that transmission would be stopped by the vaccination when the science wasn't clear on that. Um, so I think the more we've polarized this issue, the more long-term it will hurt you know, public health advice and the ability to really rally the population towards strong, smart measures. Well, hopefully such a crisis doesn't come so soon because I also think there's just exhaustion, right? There's just a public exhaustion with any measures related to COVID, but with respect to restrictions in any way. And, uh, you know, I'm traveling in the coming days to New York for a conference and you know, it's not just Canada that still has some of these measures that, you know, I've got to be vaccinated to go into the state of New York. I need a negative rapid test also to enter the state of New York. So I think to your point, and it's not just a Canadian challenge, it's ensuring that policies catch up as quickly as possible to the science and, and that there isn't the lag that we've seen. I think that's probably the greatest criticism I would have. And, and thinking specifically around travel related mandates, we haven't moved quickly enough to to keep up with the science and to ensure that the accommodations match the science. How much, so you pointed to, I think uh, a couple of times, sort of a, a divisiveness around the mandates. And then when you reflect back on the conservative party and there have been particular moments that I think of M103 being one or the global compact on migration, in some ways, every conversation we have about climate, but do you, do you reflect on that same conversation or idea of divisiveness and, and say we need to do better on our side too and there are any number of examples where we need to do better and need to reflect on our own on our own behavior to ensure that we are holding the middle together as it were and holding the country together in a more serious way yeah i, th I i've i reflected on that quite a bit when i was leader and you know we talked about we're taping this on the anniversary of d-day we're also taping this on the anniversary of the terrible attack against the family in london the muslim family that were run down when they're out for a Sunday evening walk. Um, and, you know, I traveled there with the prime minister and the other party leaders to, to the vigil um, outside the mosque in London. And um, I think, I think in the past, we haven't always brought 
the tone and respect to some debates that we needed to. Um, there, the M103 was politicized by both sides, um, unfortunately. Um, I actually spoke to Miss Khalid Ikra, whose, whose motion it was, about the fact that it was basically taken from an e-petition that Tom Mulcair had kind of done some stunts in the House of Commons calling for UC on a e-petition that most people had never heard of. And particularly for a discussion on a topic as important as Islamophobia, you shouldn't have it as a kind of gotcha motion in the House of Commons. And her, her M103 grew out of what Tom did. And I think the way it was done was uh, done to provoke some response from our benches. And there were some of the responses from our benches were, was, were inappropriate um, and wrong. And, but this is kind of the nature of the sort of gotcha stuff in, in politics that I, I really worry about. And so both myself and several members of our, of our caucus expressed um, regret and failure on their part for certain decisions related to, to that or the barbaric tip line from the 2014, yeah. 2015 That's election. A good example too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I thought it showed a lot of, strength and fortitude for for people like Michelle and, and Tim Upple to to address that. Um, and I tried to do that as leader as I was reaching out, you know, in London. Um, I was one of the leaders that got some booze from the crowd uh, in front of the mosque. And you know what? We have to be willing to take that frustration and anger at us because we have made some mistakes in the past. But I also then had meetings with members of the family and members of the community who appreciated coming despite the fact knowing I was going to probably get booed or not the warm reception. And we had uh, incredible members from the Muslim community in various parts of the country stepping up to run for us in the last election, knowing that even within their own community, there's some, still some people that, that don't trust us, for example. Um, but I, I said to them, you're first few steps are so important in our journey to really reflect Canada of 2022 um, and to make sure our caucus and our, our leadership teams and our fundraising teams and reflect, reflect that too, both in terms of, you know, cultural background, but also um, members of the LGBTQ uh, community. Um, I was really proud of the slate we ran um, showing that we're trying in some areas where we've fallen short with some groups of Canadians, we're showing a real effort to make up for that. And I think and that that's may have what done you in part about. two, because the convoy we've spoken about that did you in a little bit, the vote on conversion therapy probably did you in a little bit as well with some, and it's not lost on me that it's now two conservative leaders. First, Patrick Brown at the provincial level, who stood behind a, a price mechanism on carbon and was ousted quite quickly. And you then standing firmly behind a pricing mechanism are ousted quite quickly as well post-election. Do you? How much do you lay at the feet of embracing climate action and embracing carbon pricing? This, you know, in the wake of a decade, I think, of, of conservatives, you know, tripping over themselves to attack this, this 
market-based idea. Oh, you're reminding me of my last number of months uh, going over all these things. You know, <laughs> one friend said to me, you were done in by the three C's, Aaron, convoy, conversion, and climate. <laughs> and, well, uh, no, look, as I said at the outside, uh, outset, Nate, like some of the changes I was bringing, I needed to win that election. And I think, you know, victory <laughs> soothes all ailments, right? right? And, but when that didn't happen, Certain issues for certain MPs and certain groups were were areas that they either wanted us to reverse our position or 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 progress being made or get rid of the leader. And so I think um, climate was one of them. And I think what's interesting when I announced our our policy, which was quite comprehensive. And I have a podcast coming out shortly with Mark Jacquard on on climate environment and talking uh, about the approach we tried to bring. I read speeches given by John Baird and the late Jim Prentice on pricing carbon (laughs) and from the sort of Stefan Dion era when when Stephen Harper was in a minority and they and were cap and trade supporters at the time, is my record. They were. It was going to be the cap and trade, which kind of Quebec is 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 still engaged in, but it was talking about the free market principles behind that. Um, I think conservative politicians of federal and provincial levels have dined out so much against the carbon tax that many of our own ranks don't even really understand what that pricing mechanism is meant to do. Um, Once there's a built-in price, businesses will adapt and innovate to to save money and to to be more efficient, to to emit less, um, or in the cap and trade, trade it, uh, or in uh, the case of carbon capture and things like this, try to, to mitigate. And there's a there's an incentive structure that free marketers can understand. My issue was that I tried to keep my commitment on the carbon tax by saying our pricing mechanism will not be treated as a normal uh, tax that goes to Ottawa for redistribution, because that's another issue that Canadians don't realize. The carbon tax is also an income redistribution model because people that take the 501 streetcar on the beach uh, will get more back than, than they paid in as opposed to a rural person in Port Perry in my riding that commutes to Mississauga, they will not net out ahead. They will be behind. Same for rural and farmers and things like this. So I didn't like the federal tax as it was structured, but we also had to contend with the fact that the Supreme Court had made their decision on the challenge from Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Ontario. And it would have been perfect for me, Nate, if those three provinces had said, hey, we lost the case. We're deciding to either go into the federal Trudeau program or here is our made in Saskatchewan or made in Alberta solution. And we could then say, we respect the provincial autonomy. And from our calculations, it will help us meet our Paris targets. We didn't have that luxury. So we tried to come up with a plan to meet our commitments, which I was always crystal clear that even in the in the race when I said I was against the carbon tax, I said we have to do better on the environment. And I believe Canada should make its international commitments on everything from climate to NATO to foreign foreign aid, uh, 
if we really want to be the leader we think we are, we've got to be the country that says we step up to our commitments. And to do that on climate, it was impossible without a pricing mechanism because we tried to avoid it. Um, and our modeling showed that we wouldn't even get close to the original 30% Paris targets without a pricing mechanism of some sort. It's a curiosity and I think a brokenness of our politics that a core economic idea of in no way center left economics is there's a negative externality and we need to internalize that externality via a price to ensure that the market failure is addressed. And, you know, it's a Ronald Coase idea. I, I don't know why. It's, it's not that we have to explain it in those terms, but that we would go to the wall attacking that basic economic idea has always baffled me about conservative politics in this country. And so it was nice that you were at least trying to move past that. Although I wonder now that there's, you know, we're back in the thick of a conservative leadership and we still have leadership candidates railing against the carbon tax. We might, we might be back. (laughs) We might be back to square one. I'm not sure. You mentioned Canada meeting its commitments on climate with respect to NATO in the election, you ran us on a significant increase to the Canada workers benefit, a program that I think we should increase. And we've increased it, you know, significantly proportionately from 1.2 billion to the 3 billion that it is on an annual basis now, but it's still a fraction of, we spend $60 billion a year on old age security and GIS. We spend $30 billion a year on the Canada child benefit. And we spend $3 billion a year on the Canada workers' benefit. And it's the working age Canadians who are really being left behind here. We've promised a, a new Canada disability benefit. Again, if we want to realize that in a, in a, in a serious way, it's going to cost money. And so when you look at the defense spending, which even with the increased defense spending of this recent budget, it's not the 2%. When you look at the Canada workers' benefit, the need to increase that, the need to lift the standard of living up of, of low-income Canadians, how do we do all this in a fiscally responsible, sustainable way? And don't we need new taxes to do it? Because when I look at this idea of fiscal responsibility at the federal level, I don't want to deficit spend on you know increasing the basic personal exemption. I don't want a deficit spend to increase OAS. I don't want a deficit spend on the Canada workers' benefit. I want those measures to be paid for. I'm, I'm okay with massive deficit spending on climate action one time or short-term expenditures that are going to be infrastructure-related, that are going to last a significant period of time and are going to, where the benefits accrue to future generations. So not only the, the debt accrues, but the benefits accrue to the same to the same future. But it strikes me that we are not having a conversation in Canada about how we pay for the things that we need and the things that we want. And we want that 2% for NATO as just one example, but it's got to be paid for. Well, let me quote your old colleague, Bill Morneau, who uh, just last week, Nate, (laughs) said that this government doesn't focus enough on economic growth and and you know, bringing in new revenues through growth. He was only two- finance minister for, for yeah, five and a half years. He, he bears no responsibility. <laughs> That's right. Well, he 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 almost said, I, I felt like, oh my gosh, he was almost giving a speech I gave last year on this very, very topic. My, my concern is we are becoming uh, too top heavy in terms of federal interference into provincial areas of jurisdiction in terms of long-term program spending. The child care plan that you guys ran on the $10 a day, that that will not be delivered. Um, 
you, you may get close to it, but um, it will work very well in beaches East York. It will not work well in rural parts of the country. And what what I think we should have done was what we kind of proposed, which is direct payments quarterly to, to you know lower income families to pay for all their childcare expenses. But I do think you know the investment bankers living south of Queen and the beach uh, probably don't need ten dollars a day, <laughs> Nate. Um, but yeah. uh, but the other the big mistake Bill Morneau made. Not that I'm picking on Bill Morneau, but when you guys changed old age security age limits um, or eligibility back down to sixty five from sixty seven, that was very dumb public policy. Be- for two reasons. One, it's it's going to cost the treasury increasingly more in the coming years. It's it's billions. So that could fill the gap you're talking about. And it's also discouraging people from working longer. Um, you know, this the retirement age of 65, that was all based on when when men lived to 63, you know, on average 50 years ago. Um, I think our our benefit programs and our our you know our state supports need to reflect the reality of demographics. And so increasingly, you know, there was a real irony in the 2015 campaign. You'd remember you won for the first time and I, I lost as part of the government, but won my seat. I found it so ironic that you guys had Hazel McCallion on TV commercials attacking our plan on OAS, even though Hazel was famous for being mayor to almost a hundred and some of our changes to old age security was intended to get people working longer. Um, all these demographic realities still exist. So I really think the what you're saying, you know, you don't we need new taxes to do this? I actually think we need to spend from the federal treasury smarter and have programs that reflect demographic realities geographic realities so that when the federal government, which is not responsible for childcare in any way, suggests we're going to have this national $10 a day program, in some parts of the rural parts of the country, you're taking away options from people in in cultural communities. Some cultural communities have it ingrained that the grandparents will will watch the kids or and and they have sometimes multifamily homes where where this is done. So they would rather say, Hey, why don't you actually let us bring in a parent from a family reunification standpoint on immigration, which will accomplish childcare and other goals just as well as a, a top-down national program. So this is a ranting way of explaining. No, to no, you. I, I think we've got enough, this, Aaron. Uh, we've got enough tax base there. We don't need new taxes. We need <laughs> well, to I'm spend better. I'm sympathetic to, uh, I don't think there is a strong ec- economic case for universal child care. There are other reasons to defend universality. I'm a product of the public school system, and there are other reasons to defend universal programs like that. But you're, you are right. The The economic return of uh, tax dollar going to cut the fees of everyone by 25% doesn't return very much at the top end, if anything, right? So there's no economic case there. And I think James Heckman, the famous economist, Nobel Prize winning economist who's focused on childcare says very much the same thing. When it comes to the OAS increase, I'm I'm actually sympathetic to what you say in terms of that being a thing we promised in 2015, but I don't think that was a long-term sustainable policy. And, And I think sometimes when you do have 
governments that do make a tough decision, probably the right decision, but a tough decision, and they wear that decision, we should be especially careful about rolling those Mm -hmm. things back because they can be so hard to do in the first instance. But I do also, uh, I think it's a bit too much of a cheat probably to say we need to address productivity. Of course, we need to address productivity. Canadian productivity is is very weak. We need to, we're a country of oligopolies. We need more competition. We need more investments in R&D. We need much greater emphasis on productivity. And that's where Bill Morneau is right. I think where it falls down for me in some ways, though, is you want to increase defense spending to the target of 2%, for example. No change you make today on productivity is going to get us the windfall needed to get us to 2%. So I think we're a bit too flippant sometimes to say we're the party of fiscal responsibility. We demand fiscal responsibility. Oh, here's a measure that we really like for spending. And so go spend on that without turning our minds to actually how we pay for it. And I think we we struggle in this country sometimes to look squarely at one another and say, here are the things we need and here's how we're going to pay for them in, in a sustainable long-term way. Okay. So that, that's my rant. Well, you ranted, it, I ranted, it, but it, uh, it, in this plan that I just happen to have sitting there, <laughs> uh, we, 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 we actually holding up, holding up uh, what was that? Was that GQ? What was that? That's uh, the uh, Mike Holmes, uh, the the uh, home <laughs> renovation expert. Yeah, that's that's Aaron um, O'Toole ha- holding up uh, Aaron O'Toole, Canada's plant conservative plan. <laughs> <laughs> it's a historical curiosity now. Um, one thing I'll say on defense, and I'm more than happy. I have a lot of respect for for Minister Anan. Um, yeah, um, great. She's, she's she's very strong minister, and I think uh, I think she's going to tackle some of the challenges, but also some of the opportunities w- with respect to the military in light of Ukraine and everything else. But I've long said that part of our two percent should include Arctic sovereignty and should include infrastructure spend for the north. So I, I really think because the territories have very little tax base, and and now they're they're rightly doing more with respect to Inuit and Indigenous development corporations. And I thought that federal government should upload um, all of the airports, ports, all the critical infrastructure that is helping us express our, our sovereignty and our presence in the North. I think Canadians would support that. Uh, we are the North after all. But I also think that that would be a huge element of defense and security spending, but that's also basic community infrastructure that is lacking in the North. Another big area of spend that would be good for productivity would be becoming leaders in cyber. And we, we've, whether it's BlackBerry, whether it's open text, whether it's, um, you know, secure key, we've actually been leaders in this space. And this is another area where U S defense spending basically created Silicon Valley <laughs> and, and the DARPA program, which we, we advocated for for several years, you guys included a promise uh, of a sort. And there you have defense spending that would also defend our electricity grid or our financial infrastructure. And so I think in the modern age, there's more to defense and security spending than just jets, tanks, and ships. Those are critical as someone that It's a helicopter guy who sailed with ships. Those are critical. But to meet the 2%, we could actually reflect the modern needs of the country in terms of the Arctic and cyber, and hopefully meet or at least have a plan to to attain the NATO target. Because I remember Obama's speech in parliament years ago, this has been a real bugbear for our allies for many years. Um, Obama mentioned NATO in his speech in the House of Commons. It it is noticed that we're we're lacking. And so if Canada wants to have 
working capital in, in these global meetings and in very difficult times, we have to play our part. My last substantive question, I appreciate your time. You, I've mentioned some of the areas where I think you were pushing the party and, and struggled as a result. One area where you pushed the party, but I, I didn't notice any struggle. And I think it's a testament to the fact that Canadians on, regardless of political stripe, are, are getting to a place that, that is following the evidence in a more serious way. But when you spoke about Gord Johnsville, a number of stood up on the liberal side, at least a number of us, 15 of us, I think, stood up, not an overwhelming number, but but more than usual in disagreeing with the government to say, no, we, we should go further and faster than the government is moving. And it's great to see the BC pilot on decrim and treating drug use as a health issue. There's an, you know money for safer supply and, and treatment and expanding treatment, which I know conservatives generally agree with. I, I did a political blind date episode with Garnett Genus, and that's where there was a lot of common ground was expanding treatment. But you were pretty clear as a leader that criminalizing people for simple possession is not something you were interested in. And you weren't, I don't think, ready to embrace the word decriminalization in the same way that the prime minister is a bit skittish about it, too. But do you did you get any pushback on on moving the party forward on drug policy? A little bit, but not 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 like all the other areas. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Um, uh, you know, I. I thought about supporting Gord's bill. Um, Now I'm in a weird position as the former leader and we're in the middle of the race. And you know, my concern is I think all the efforts around harm reduction also have to be met with an equally strong commitment to treatment. And that is sometimes where there is a disconnect between kind of conservatives like me that, that, do not want any criminal sanction for someone that has an addiction that actually wants to support harm reduction and treatment side by side. And um, I was one of the ones in our caucus that supported decriminalization of marijuana back in 2013, 2014, because of the impact on lives and the gumming up of our justice system. Um, I lost that debate internally at the time. But one thing, being party leader, you can win the debates on on certain things. So I wanted to send a very strong message that we would, um, you know, not not safe supply, but decriminalization, removing the the criminal sanction element from uh, simple possession of of most drugs, um, provided that we were also ramping up treatment options. And I got a little bit of question because people think it's, running contrary to sort of the law and order position of, of the conservatives. But I said, addiction can relate to trauma, mental health, and a range of issues. And that's where we have to show our compassion as conservatives and, um, and offer reducing harm, but also offer a road back. And one of my favorite events during the campaign was in, uh, BC where we were at a, um, a treatment facility called the last door. And I, I played bing bag toss with, with some of the, the guys living there and, and talked about how they most cases got off the street. They were repairing relationships with children and parents. And because um, they were not thrown in jail, they were given help. And I think, I think it's very conservative to show that compassion and to have the criminal sanction attached to people that are trafficking and and you know and and luring people into a life of 
drugs and dependence and prostitution and human trafficking, it, it can all be linked. So save our, our tough on crime, lock them up type approach to the people that are, are trading on, on harm and misery and show complete compassion for the folks that are, are in the depths of addiction. Um, there was by and large full support for that. And I, I hope there will be. And I think there's another bill in the Senate. And I think if Gord continues his work and you've been on this, I think as long as there's equal um, attention given to the treatment, because I'll tell you the treatment people out there, whether it's 12 step, whether it's a, you know, a faith-based or AA or whatever, they kind of feel like they've been kind of shoved out the door in recent years as safe supply and harm reduction has been all that we talk about with respect to drug policy. As long as that treatment option is there, because the goal has to be not just eliminating the harms of the drug use, giving an option for people to recover. Um, as long as that's there, you're going to get a lot of conservatives supporting it. Because you don't want to throw the criminal law. You, you don't want to approach anyone and threaten people with the criminal law where they are, you know, a first time, a recreational user who aren't, aren't experiencing harms and the criminal law is just going to actually create harms. But for the, for the person who is, addicted uh, you don't want to turn move them into the criminal justice system when the health system is where they need to be moved to and so what they really need is not the criminal law they need treatment on demand and i think that again funding for that is is a, an area where it, i think it cuts across party lines in terms of where we can find support okay my last question for you Aaron. i appreciate it. you've been very patient so my last question for you there is you are staying out of the leadership race you have had an interesting career already. You've been a minister. You've been now former leader. You've uh, I've enjoyed working with you on the public safety committee before I got tossed off the public safety committee. I, <laughs> <laughs> I it's hard actually not debating you on this podcast because I also enjoy giving you a hard time um, when it, I think there were more people on stage than in the audience at the uh, at the Churchill <laughs> Society That's right. that we did. But uh, but it was uh, it was fun nonetheless. But. Are you going to run again, no matter how the leadership shakes out? Or, or have you turned your mind to what you want to do going forward in in conservative politics? And if this is what you want to keep doing, regardless of the leader, or is it contingent on who the leader is? Well, look, I've, I've said uh, from the time I was first elected right through to the speech after the vote by my caucus, when uh, I stepped down as leader, um, I'm honored to be the MP for the community I grew up in. And we just had our first street festival in two years, Maple Fest in Bowmanville, because there's some great maple syrup, but we have Apple Fest in the fall. Um, it was so good to see people. And I still consider some of my biggest successes in politics to be helping reunite families that were lost in the immigration system. Um, you know, I've helped mentor and, and, uh, advise young people who've worked for me, whether in my office, I've got one clerking for the Supreme Court this year, you know, another one at Oxford. Um, this is such an honor. So I, I'm going to maintain uh, my role as MP because I think it. you don't have to be a party leader to make progress. And I think you've shown that, Nate, developing expertise in, in a few areas, uh, being well-respected, sometimes being a contrarian, which is what I loved about you on the public safety committee <laughs> in the first years, you confounded the liberal whip. Um, and, and then see what the, the leader, the next leader um, has for the team, has for me, has for vision for the country. 
what what I'm doing now is I'm focusing on areas that I really think are very important to my riding and to me and that are unresolved. So I'm going to be coming forward with some policy with respect to Afghan refugees and particularly our interpreters that we really did leave behind. And we, we, we had years to get many people out of Afghanistan before it fell. Uh, the situation in Ukraine, I was just talking to a friend who was on the ground in Ukraine in the Donbass and, and in parts of, uh, war fighting i was getting updates yesterday we we kicked off talking about veterans um i'm going to be trying to advocate alongside valor in the presence of the enemy for this review function for for the award of a victoria cross or for people that were missed in the past and then i'm a big advocate we could probably get into a whole hour debate for uh, nuclear power as part of our mix to meet our emission reduction targets and I have Darlington generating station in my riding. I've been, I started a caucus in this area years ago. I've been a big advocate and now it's much more topical with small modular reactors and more people becoming open to that being part of our electricity mix to meet our Paris targets. So these are all things that I'm going to advocate on and I don't need a title of shadow this or shadow that Um, I get to, I get to use my profile and the goodwill I've built up including cross-party in many cases, to to make progress. It's the same. Um, I'm going to hopefully be meeting with Minister Anand uh, to, to give her my perspective on a range of things from Ukraine to mental health to the uh, Arbour report with respect to uh, sexual misconduct in the Canadian Armed Forces. Um, it's something I've been advocating on for many years as a veteran. And so I guess that gives me a really lucky standpoint to be the MP for my community and, and deliver and then use this goodwill. As you said, I'm a lot of formers, former leader, former minister, former lawyer, former, <laughs> I'm still young, but I'm a lot of formers. But if I can leverage that to actually get successes for my community and for things I believe in, I find fulfillment in that. And uh, that's all you can ask for. Yeah. And you've done the same and you haven't had, um, you know, I'm ministerial office, <laughs> your future, your future. And, you know, let's make news on this podcast, Nate, you know, uh, Mr. Del Duca stepped down and, you know, I made a prediction that you might uh, one day go for that. So uh, are you getting a lot of phone calls about, about that recently? Some, yeah. I, and at the time you asked me that I said down the road, I'd be interested. My expectation is we would actually perform better. I thought Del Duca would be given two election cycles if he if he fared you know well enough, I think I leaders should be given to to election cycles. Just for the record, <laughs> you you would uh, actually. <laughs> so I I think that they made a mistake not giving you a second election cycle. Some uh, some people were kicking the tires as far as it goes. But all that aside, I, I I'm seriously thinking about it. It's one of those things, as you know, and I should be asking you more questions on this front in terms of. Uh, I'm turning the, the tables. I like this. Just in terms of the impact on family and and the. It's, it's, it, it takes a toll, right? And this job takes a toll. But I think when you commit yourself to something bigger than this in terms of leadership, it, it is asking a lot of one's family. And so, you know, I, I'm I'm having those conversations. So I don't know. I'm, I'm thinking about it, though. I'm seriously thinking about it. Would you vote oh, for me? Uh, I made this <laughs> prediction uh, a while ago. I think, I think Nathaniel Erskine-Smith and Bonnie Crombie will be two candidates in that race. And uh, I'm friends with them both. So uh, A, I... I'm 
Tory through and through and through. So I won't be voting in that race, <laughs> but I have a lot of respect for you both. And you've got young children, incredibly cute uh, children. Um, but Toronto being your home base in Queens Park would obviously be something that can make it easier. Yeah. I know for four years, I did the drive back and forth uh, from Ottawa to Toronto every week or to the Toronto area of Durham, and it it can be draining. So good luck with those decisions. I, I do think that good people need to step up, particularly now, because there is division. Anybody that can kind of bring people together, um, I think... It's more important for those type of people now. And I, I think you're very good at, at doing just that. Um, you've got a lot of good relationships you've built up on all sides of the House of Commons. Yeah. And yeah, um, yeah. that's a leadership skill that even somebody with more titles attached don't always have those qualities. So, uh, so good luck with the decision. Well, I, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. And I may come, I, I may come knocking at your door to ask more questions because it, it is there's so many elements to the job in terms of, and, and to even the decision to, to pursue it. And you, and you threw your hat in twice and you went through a series of these same conversations the first time, and then went through them all over again the second time. And, and then you, you lived it as, you know, cause there's, I think uh, you mentioned the loneliness of being the leader of the opposition, but I think you have to also mentally prepare in running for the leadership. One is to do your best to win it. And you have to, you know, be committed to seeing that through, but then you also have to be committed to whatever comes to building the party and to seeing the party through different election cycles, you know? And, and so there's lots, lots to think about. I appreciate your time and I, it's nice to, it's nice to catch up. It's thanks for having me on the podcast first. Although the invitation was extended to you first and the scheduling just got in the way. So I, uh, I'm glad we could connect twice over. I hope I will be seeing, you know, I think you've licked your wounds enough. So I, I, ho I hope we see one another more often in, in Parliament. Thanks, Nate. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Uncommons. It was a little longer than usual. So thanks, especially if you stuck with us all the way here. As always, please leave a positive review on your platform of choice. You can always reach me on social media at BEYNate or by email at info at BEYNate.ca. And otherwise, until next time.